0: Bobcast, 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 Bobcast. This is the Bobcast, a podcast exploring Reformed theology through the works of Herman Bovink.
1: there bob squad welcome to another episode of bobcast i'm caleb castro
0: and i'm andrew smith this is episode 23 oh man in some ways it feels so short a time in other ways so much longer
1: any conversation with us is so much longer (laughs) it's true but we are we are enjoying it we really hope you're all enjoying it as well and that we're all learning something and being edified by it
0: define enjoying
1: (laughs) you know we're just gonna pull up Webster's here and take a look. No, we're not. Yeah. So today we have a bit of a unique, really fascinating topic here, uh, Andrew. What is that topic today?
0: Well, that topic is the conscience, not conscious conscience, because words are hard.
1: <laughs> conscience. We're gonna be talking about science, science cons. Ooh, we could do a lot on that. <laughs> Mind science, yeah. Bobbing on the conscience, we thought this would be a little bit of a, a neat topic to get into. Bobbing doesn't talk about it very much in his systematics. I think there's a brief mention of it at some point in original sin in his dogmatics, volume three. But he actually did an article on this topic. Andrew, you want to tell us a little bit about the background of this article?
0: Yeah. So this article it appeared in 1881 in a church publication. Now, 1881 was an important time in Bovink's life because this would have been during his first pastorate, his only pastorate, at Franeker, which he held from late 1880 to 1882, uh, just over a year. This article basically lays out his position on the conscience. Now, this is not his only word on the matter. The just-published, a year or two ago, Reformed Ethics which was discovered posthumously, is in the process of being translated. Volume 1 of that, which is out, contains a full chapter, rather lengthy treatment also of the conscience, mostly saying the same things, though, in a little more detailed fashion.
1: Well... You know, uh, also in 1881, that was the year where uh, the state of Kansas became the first state to put prohibitions upon alcohol.
0: That's interesting. I wonder, I don't know how attentive Bob Inc would have been to such a development, but it is fascinating that that would have happened at the same time.
1: That is absolutely fascinating. And yeah, maybe our friends at Distilling Theology would have some knowledge about that Bob Inc and 1881 prohibition in Kansas. Do we know if Bovink had a position on Prohibition? Yeah, we should definitely look into that and see. I doubt he was a teetotaler. He was Dutch. I
0: kind of doubt that as well. Um, Also, you know, my other favorite theologian, J. Gresham Machen, took a rather unpopular position against Prohibition, even as many American Presbyterians, such as famously William Jennings Bryan, were pushing it. It's always been a topic of a little bit of interest to me.
1: That we'll have to wait for another time. Once we start maitching cast, we can do that. Yeah, maitching cast or fuse with the DT guys. Yeah. <laughs> Talk about uh, various theologians' positions on alcohol,
0: on prohibition. Yeah.
1: Now this topic uh, is a little bit. In some ways, strange to think about. You know, I think about the conscience and like, okay, you know, what is that thing? The little voice you get in the back of the head, you know, tells you yes or no or weighs heavy on you. You kind of wonder, like, you know, where does that come from?
0: Well, we all know from our popular media that it's the angel that sits on one shoulder as opposed to the devil on the other shoulder that's telling you all the bad things you should do. (laughs)
1: He tells you bad things?
0: Well, the devil, you know, you've seen where you got the angel pops up on one shoulder and the, the devil on the other, you know, and all TV shows and stuff. And they're arguing with each other about what you ought to do. Oh, maybe you don't watch the same stuff I do.
1: <laughs> well, the guy with the uh, the guy with the the pointy horns usually tells me the fun stuff. Well, uh, <laughs> we'll just
0: leave that comment where it lies. <laughs>
1: Now, Bavinck's uh, wanting to talk about the conscience here, and in this uh, article, he gives us kind of the first little snip of it right out of the gate. He starts off by saying uh, the conscience refers to those thoughts within ourselves that accuse us or excuse us, just like that little angel and devil that Andrew were talking about. So why exactly is Bavinck, uh wanting to talk about this subject, though, of all things? He notes himself that uh, basically... At this point in 1881, and perhaps even for us today, a doctrine about the conscience is far from being established. Sure. It's difficult for scientific understanding. This is a topic where I mean, we're talking something metaphysical here. Some neurological scientists might say it's like electronic brain impulses and that kind of thing. But there's overall, I think, unclarity, and uncertainty, and even ambiguity in the very term, the conscience,
0: It's the sort of thing that defies natural categories being, you know, postmodern people that we are. We like to think that there's a natural scientific type explanation for anything like there must be some part of our brain or some sort of system in our body that causes the conscience to exist. And yet we can't really account for such a thing. And yet it's something that's clear from nature from history from experience that everybody does have one
1: or at least should have one (laughs)
0: Well, yeah, that's true. And I mean, it, it can become seared. It can become disordered. You know, there are certain, you know, mental illnesses and such that result in an impairment of one's conscience and inability for it to function as intended.
1: Yeah. But I mean, to your point, everybody has one, really, when it comes down to it, just different degrees, I suppose, or in different manners. Yeah. He asked the question pretty early on there. I think it's on the first or second page of the article. The conscience has certain like distinct capacities it seems to have uh, or possess unique content, or at least it has some kind of relation to the moral life. So that's pretty much the main interest. To what extent does the conscience possess unique content? And to what extent does it have a relation to that moral life, to our ethics?
0: Well, and that really is the question here, because it's a controversial subject. Some would say that, you know, for instance, morality is relative. You know, you, my truth is my truth, your truth is your truth, so well, we can do what we want, and we can even persuade our consciences that something is right, even when, at least objectively speaking, according to the law of God that we would hold to as Christians, it
1: may be wrong. In that same manner, uh, as we'll get to later on, what does a renewed conscience look like? How can the conscience be redeemed, and in what way? What about, you know, we still struggle with sin, so how does that all work? Yeah, that's pretty much where we're looking to go here. Another
0: interesting thing, though, to consider, too, is we've been going through wonderful works of God and talking almost exclusively up to this point about Revelation, and there actually is a pretty close relationship Between general and special revelation and the conscience, I know the conscience has come up in those discussions a little bit, but just the idea of, is this conscience somehow innately connected to what
1: God has revealed? Yeah, they have a relationship. Are they uh, just friends or it's complicated? Yeah. Are they married? Are they divorced? (laughs) We can put it in Facebook terms. We will create a profile later for the conscience. Okay. You can add it as a friend. Get to know it. You, however, (laughs) cannot. Yeah. So this phrase conscience. Balvinck, one of the starting places in this article, uh, he goes into a couple pages of talking about the origin and development of the word conscience. He goes through a bit of an etymology, and he mentions Dutch, German, Greek, Latin, French, English. Just really a quick little survey of it. And he basically just says... According to the Roman understanding of the conscience, it had to do with dignity and virtue and honor, very important traits in their society. And he said they they understood conscience as, quote, an authority to be respected and feared. It was a sense of justice and equity, unquote. There was even a Roman proverb that perhaps gets pretty close to how we understand it today, I think. Uh, The proverb is, conscience is a thousand witnesses, or it's a moral authority for the living. Conscience has some kind of independent authority and a domain related to the individual
0: and this roman concept it was actually it was a development it was a departure from what was previously held for instance by a greek philosophy that came earlier which was the conscience wasn't really a thing virtue was more or less tied into the state and what does the state require what does the state permit or prohibit so for the romans Uh, to develop this idea of a conscience as bound up in a sense of honor and justice and those sort of things uh, was a rather significant development, at least in the tradition of philosophy.
1: Yeah, and he had mentioned even Homer, who I think was writing about 1200 BC, talking about the personification of the feeling of grievous injury and painful indignity aroused by the intentional transgression of sacred rights. Your conscience pushes against those sacred rights. And I believe he's referring to something of uh, ethics here. But we want to go back a little bit farther in time there. Bavinck next takes us to the scriptural witness, starting with the Old Testament.
0: Yes, he does. So he does call out right away that there wasn't a particular Old Testament word for conscience, unlike in the Greek of the New Testament, which we'll get to here shortly. For Old Testament Israel, conscience is bound up entirely in the law of God. It's acting on God's will. That's the focus of the conscience. That's what it's for. And so the law is the ultimate standard, the judge by which the conscience is supposed to operate.
1: With that law, where was it operating? What was the seed of the conscience there?
0: So we see this idea of the conscience first appearing in Genesis 3 at the time of the fall. Once the fall occurs, even before the fall occurs, you see the temptation to act in a certain way. You know, the serpent comes in and tells them to eat of the tree, and there is a deliberative process that goes on. But ultimately, Adam and Eve take the fruit, and then there's shame. There's the recognition of nakedness. Now we see for the first time in history the conscience acting in light of sin whereas previously that was not the case
1: Bobbing seems to take this then as the origin of the conscience after the fall he points to the conscience as basically an awareness of self and an awareness to god how the two relate to one another using uh, the translation of the article the self-awareness and the awareness of god before the fall there's no inner accusation there's A voice inside of us that convicts us of our sin uh, and the possibility of sin. So after the fall, like Andrew said, the eyes are opened to God. Bobbing calls this uh, then the conscience is a symptom of disease. Bobbing says there's now a symptom of disease, uh, a shattering of our awareness of God and our awareness of self. This is like the distortion of the the moral condition.
0: Right. For the first time, we see that there is a recognition By man of right and wrong and the difference between... Whereas previously, man had not sinned, man did not have an awareness of having done wrong.
1: You mentioned something interesting a second ago with Eve understood a temptation. Does that temptation fit in with uh, what Inc is saying about there is not really a conscience until afterwards, after the fall, because there was no actual transgression of sin? Like in the way he's talking about it, there's no inner accusation or voice. Is there a sense of conscience, you think, before the fall with, with Eve's temptation? Well,
0: to borrow the Turretanism, I would say we distinguish. I say that because, if, for instance, if you look at Reformed Ethics, uh, the bottom of page 206, bovink does address this idea of Adam and Jesus, for that matter, having a conscience. He says, Nevertheless, we may state it somewhat popularly that Adam and Jesus each had a conscience. This is so in the first place because it is in the conscience that we take note of the bond that ties us to God. So in the sense that there was an awareness of communion and awareness of relationship to God, yes, there was a conscience. And then also he goes on to say, second, we can say this because the conscience remains the continuing testimony of God within us. But then he contrasts this. At the same time, it must be said that the form, orientation, and function of this testimony have radically changed. What was originally a communion of love for God on the part of Adam and Eve is now on the one hand precisely the denial of communion.
1: Uh uh-huh. So basically you could say a distinction between shame, which Eve was feeling possibly some kind of form of shame when she was being tempted, but not a guilt or even say a consciousness of her guilt.
0: Right. And also indicating a change of the nature of relationship before right. and after the fall. If the conscience is bound up in our relationship to God, God, then that's going to be different based on whether there is the presence or absence of sin.
1: And so there's literally then just the the awareness of having acted wrongly. And the one that was acted wrongly against was God, right? And his law. So that's what's actually changed. Right. To have an awareness of having sinned, you had to have sinned in the first place. So before the fall, there isn't an actual conscience that accuses. Now, just as a a brief note here, the translation in the article uh, that was given by Dr. Uh, Klosterman who translated this article, made the phrase of Bobbink talking about the conscience as a self-awareness and an awareness to God. In a uh, recent publication by uh, Corey Brock, adapted from his dissertation, Brock notes that here, Bobbink is actually using in the original language, uh, he's using terminology from Schleiermacher. The work that he's writing this in is Orthodoxy at Modern, Herman Bobbink's Appropriation of Schleiermacher. The actual phrase that Bobbink is writing is uh, a phrase that used of self-consciousness and a consciousness to God or God consciousness. We've been seeing kind of a trend in Inc in our previous episode, The Value of General Revelation. We noted Inc tended to use uh, some terms from Hegel in antithesis. How do we get from, you know, one thought or one worldview and another worldview and fuse them together to understand the next aspect? Well, anyways, Inc tends to use some modern uh, philosophers those who had preceded him in the 18th and 19th centuries. He learned these philosophers from the University of Leiden. And these philosophers, uh, their theology was pretty liberal for the time, but we're seeing Inc. take these concepts and utilize them in orthodox ways, basically updating the language of theology, but he's maintaining his orthodoxy.
0: Essentially, what Bob Inc. is doing is he's chewing the meat and spitting out the bones of these modern philosophers and theologians, trying to find what's good and useful, but rejecting the rest. And you can see that reading this chapter in Ethics. Uh, at one point, he critiques Hegel, and then at another point, I'm um, actually in the part I read a little bit ago about whether Adam and Jesus had a conscience, he uses Hegel positively. Now, we have to be careful when we think about doing that and when we do that. For one thing, I wouldn't say that it's everybody's job to do that. Bob Inc was a scholar. He was well-grounded in his faith. There's a lot of people out there who like to read heretics, and all they ever have to say is good things about them. And that would be an alarm bell for me. That would raise concern for me if that's what a person wants to do.
1: Right. It's just a discernment, discernment, discernment. And Bob Inc. is tackling even this with Schleiermacher's language. He's utilizing scripture. He's checking it with scripture.
0: Right. He's using scripture to test, to analyze, to critique modern theology. And so far as it is compatible with scripture, then he can accept it. But if not, it must be rejected.
1: Yep. So we, we want to use that as our pattern. Now, leaving a Schleidiggity behind, uh, Schleidog <laughs> dog, as we say. Shly dog nasty. Bobby goes through other scriptural passages. He mentions Joshua 14, 7, where he basically says the heart evaluates our morality. You know, he goes through 1 Kings 2, verse 44. The conscience is the evaluator of the evil committed by us. Other passages, Jeremiah 17:1, Job 27, where Job has an understanding that there is in the conscience the job of reproaching someone or evaluating their innocence or to the extent that they're aware of guilt. The heart is basically the term for the conscience and our evaluation or convictor of if we have sinned. And then Bobbing goes on to the New Testament.
0: He talks about the idea of the conscience. He says that it is much more broad and important in the New Testament. And it occurs primarily in the writings of the Apostle Paul. Paul frequently makes reference to the conscience. It is this Greek word... Synodesis. Paul frequently makes reference to the conscience. He uses this Greek word, synodesis, which Bavink uh, uses all throughout his writing on the subject, making various claims, various appeals regarding the conscience. Obviously, there is the use in Romans 2.15 where Paul says that the Gentiles, by their actions, show that the work of the law has been written in their hearts. So this is basically the case for the conscience being grounded in the law of God. It testifies to God's law. It is a witness before us of God's law.
1: Here's another thing I think about Paul where we're seeing some pretty strong continuity between the Old Testament and New Testament concepts then. As you mentioned a a moment ago when we were talking about the Old Testament concept of the conscience was deeply tied up with the law itself. And we had mentioned that the conviction of the law would take place in the heart. And Paul continues to use that phrase heart. Paul's not speaking like a Hellenist, like a Greco-Roman philosopher. He's speaking like a Jew. Right. Right. Bobbing's assessment of Paul, he makes the distinctions that the conscience itself is not the law and the conscience itself does not contain the law. He says the law is written on the heart. So it's not the container. The law comes externally. What the conscience is, is you have conscience and our actions that then testify in and about the love of the law and to even testify that the law itself exists. Yeah, just
0: quoting from page 174 of Reformed Ethics, he says, Consequently, the conscience provides the judgment of human beings about themselves in their existing relationship to God, His law, and His will. And then he goes on later. The conscience can interpret and impurely reflect the law, which itself is immutable. That results from the conscience itself being impure, corrupted by sin. So the conscience is not the law. It's not the entirety of the law or the law's existence, but it is a witness of God's law, even if it's not perfect, even if it, too, the conscience, as with all of the person, is corrupted by sin.
1: So the law itself is outside of us, and that itself is immutable. It cannot change, and it is infallible because it is from the will of God. It's grounded in God's nature. It's grounded in God's nature, for that matter, right?
0: So it cannot change.
1: Now, what about the conscience? So the conscience in us, is the conscience infallible or immutable? Well, this is another
0: contested point in this discussion of the conscience. There are some, like, for instance, Immanuel Kant, who argued that the conscience, as it relates to the individual, is infallible, is immutable, and is the standard for that person
1: that must always be followed. So he makes the conscience the moral law itself, basically.
0: Right. Basically, Kant's project is to reduce religion entirely to an ethical set of behaviors, an ethical set of norms. So in that sense, then, he doesn't want to ground the conscience in God, because God is not all that important to Kant's system and situation. So the conscience is just sort of this free-flowing, absolute arbiter of each individual,
1: and in that way, Kant is setting the way for Darwinism and for evolution. He's looking at the sense of societal norms, basically the the contents of the conscience of morality. How do we stay away from fear and punishment? there's an emotional motivation there. The morality of the conscience is dictated by customs. So from culture to culture, they would say that, you know, these customs change. And ultimately, it's a social instinct of individual interests over groups. So individual ethics is incredibly important here. Uh, What is best to my needs for my need to survive? This is what helped shift the mentality in the West from a a collectivist, corporate-minded outlook to an individual, society in the 20th century. Darwin is going and looking at pleasure and pain, what's going to give us pleasure, what's going to help us avoid pain as the basis of morality.
0: But what's fascinating about this when you look at Darwin, if the end of Darwinism is pleasure, survival, these sorts of things, then Houston, we have a problem because that's not what most people acting according to their consciences do they retain instead some sense of doing good to other people. Whereas if a Darwinian worldview were correct, that's really not all that important.
1: And it could even become dangerous when you have an individual's motives that has a more, say, a dominant personality and comes into exercising authoritarian power. Yeah. By Darwin's
0: scheme, you ought to destroy that person
1: Yeah, this is where you get social Darwinism. And uh, once more, as we frequently appeal, you get individuals like Hitler.
0: Yeah, we need to purge the weak. We need to purge the, I guess you could say, not useful from among us. And yet, even those who don't have any concept of God or any concept of God's law or morality, as Christians would understand it, will look at what Hitler did and say, well, that's that's horrible that's atrocious we we cannot accept that we cannot have that that's a pretty dark place to end but we are out of time for today we will pick up with the rest of our discussion on the conscience in a couple of weeks next week we will have another episode from wonderful works of god so we hope you'll join us next time and until next time totzines totzines thank you for listening to Bobcast. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and leave a five-star review where you get your podcasts. For the latest Bobcast news and updates, visit bobcast.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Bobcast is a member of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Subscribe to the Society of Reformed Podcasters feed to hear more great theological content. Music is City of God by Rudy Manrique. We hope you'll join us again next time.